This podcast is brought to you by Langley & Benack, a full-service South and Central Texas law firm that delivers the highest quality legal advice coupled with exceptional client service. From our main office in San Antonio, we provide the resources of a national firm while maintaining close ties to the communities in which we practice. To learn more, please visit us at langleybenack.com. That's langleybenack.com or call us at 210-736-6600. Today's episode is part seven of a seven part series on will contest focused fiduciary litigation. This series is hosted by attorneys Christopher Hodge and Job Jackson. The information, opinions, and recommendations presented in the Langley and Benack podcast are for information purposes only and should not be considered legal or professional advice for any particular situation. The presentation of this informational content does not create an attorney-client relationship. If you would like to meet with one of our attorneys, please contact us through our website at www.langleybenack.com or call us at 210-736-6600. Welcome back to our final uh, part of the seven-part series on will contest-focused fiduciary litigation. My name is Chris Hodge, and I'm a partner at Langley and & Benack, and I'm joined by Kathy Stone and Job Jackson. And we're very excited to have Kathy join us this morning. Good morning. My name is Kathy Stone. I am a partner here at Langley & Benack. I've been with the firm since 2015. I joined the firm after spending 21 years on the Court of Appeals in San Antonio as a Justice of the Court, and my last six years I was Chief Justice of the Court. The Court of Appeals hears appeals from 32 counties in Texas, every kind of case imaginable, civil cases, criminal cases, including many, many probate cases during my tenure on the Court. Uh, which began in 1994, I probably reviewed more than a thousand probate proceedings uh, because what the Court of Appeals does is it reviews decisions from the trial courts, including probate courts, in the counties that it serves. I'm board certified in appellate law, so here at Langley and Benack, I do appeals for every kind of litigation, including probate litigation. I also head up the appellate section and the uh, ADR section, Alternative Dispute Resolution, which means that I conduct mediations and arbitrations sometimes involving probate matters. Well, thank you for being here, Kathy. And let's talk today about our final topic, uh, the finality of probate proceedings. And probate, uh, in general, is an interesting area of the law. Uh, because it binds people to property and, and property that they will essentially inherit. And so just to start, I, I pose a question to Kathy about how does an appellate court uh, first look at a, an appeal of a probate decision? Or what are some of the things that, that the appellate court is going to look at first off when there is an appeal from the probate court? Probably the initial and most important question for the Court of Appeals is whether the order being appealed is final, which has a different meaning in probate than it has 
in other areas of the law. In other areas of the law, the general rule is there's only one final judgment. There can only be one final judgment. And that rule simply does not have strict application in probate because there are so many orders that uh, are considered final within the long period of time that a, an estate might be administered that the first thing the court needs to do, the Court of Appeals needs to do, is make sure that this is one of those orders that can be appealed. And if it's not, the Court of Appeals can't take the case because they don't have jurisdiction. Okay, and is it essentially, and I know we're going to get into this uh, a little while later, but is it a fact-by-fact, fact, um, uh, I, I guess, decision by the court based on uh, whatever is being appealed as to whether or not the judgment that was entered or the order that was appealed of the probate court, whether or not it is actually appealable. Yes, and it, it does go case by case, but there are a few areas where the order is uh, clearly appealable. It's been designated by statute uh, as appealable. For example, admitting a will to probate is itself final and appealable. But then many others can depend on the facts and it can get very, very complicated. When people used to ask me as a judge, uh, how many times can you appeal something from probate court, the flippant answer was kind of endlessly, always. That's not really the case, but there are a lot of appeals that come up through probate. Okay, thank you. So. Um one of the things that's worth mentioning, and I think we'll back up a little bit and talk simplistically about the, the nature of the probate process, and a probate is, is an in-rem proceeding, and so when I talk about an in-rem proceeding, it's because it, it vests title to property in whoever the heirs or whoever the beneficiaries are of the estate, and, and essentially it provides notice to the entire world as to who is going to inherit this property. And so in that same vein, uh, there's questions about, and I, we've talked in, in some of these previous episodes about what what are you as an heir, what are you as a beneficiary, what notice are you supposed to be provided related to this probate proceeding? And, and in general, it's, it's, it's not very much notice. Um, as we mentioned before, in a regular probate, if you have a will that's being offered for probate, you as a, as a son, a daughter, a wife, uh, you're not going to necessarily get notice that the will has been offered for probate. All that the Texas Estates Code pr provides is that notice has to be posted on the courthouse door and then within 10 days or 10 days after that the uh, the will can be offered and admitted to probate. But you're not necessarily as an heir entitled to due process in terms of being served with citation. Uh, so that you know exactly um, what's going on. So, Joe, do you have anything to add to that? Well, well Chris, I, I would ask, you know, when we're talking about being served with, with process or direct notice of a probate proceeding, you know, the courts would call that actual notice. You know, there, there's proof that you have direct notice of what's going on in the court. But uh, as we've seen in, you know, Texas decisions uh, dating back years and decisions from the Texas Supreme Court, in probate proceedings, because as you said, it's in rem, uh, you're dealing with property, not necessarily people, because again, the estate is, uh, and the personal representative of the estate is merely holding that property in trust to distribute it to the proper uh, beneficiaries. Um, the, the courts have come up with a concept called constructive notice. Uh, and Chris, do you mind explaining that to the audience? What 
what constructive notice is? Sure, and I think we've touched on it before in some of our previous episodes, uh, but constructive notice in the law is that anybody who, uh, it's basically the public records, and that is the filings in the probate court or in your deed records place the world, not just the beneficiaries or the heirs on notice of what's going on, what will's been offered for probate, what judgment uh, declaring heirship uh, ha has been entered by the court. And so uh, this all sort of stems back to the need for finality in probate decisions and, and the, the need for fi finality in uh, vesting these people with the property that the decedent owned. And, and this isn't just Texas law, this is United States Supreme Court law that probate proceedings have to become final uh, so that we know who owns what, so that property can be sold, so that property can be disposed of. And so the constructive notice comes in uh, when a will is filed for probate. The whole world is on constructive notice, which our Texas courts have said is actual notice of what's going on in that person's estate, that you have a duty as the heir, as a potential beneficiary of uh, the person that died. You have a duty to go to the courthouse and look for this stuff, and you have a duty to assert your claims within the prescribed statute of limitations, or they're going to be barred. You can't just sit back and, and hope that somebody's going to tell you the right information or bring you the right documents, and somebody's going to be looking out after your best interest because that's not always the case. And and as we know, you know, our, most of our business involves people that um, that have either gotten a will done that they shouldn't have had done or taken inheritance that they that they wrongfully took um, and so you know human nature is is unfortunately greed and in that respect you know everybody has to watch out for their own interests um, and con this notice this constructive notice um, which is adhered to by all of our courts in Texas and in particular our Texas Supreme Court uh, provides that you have a duty as an heir, as a beneficiary, to go look and go figure out what's going on in that potential probate proceeding uh, related to whoever you think that you should have inherited from. Yeah. Now, Chris, in a prior episode, we discussed how, you know, when, when traditionally when an estate is opened, you know, beneficiaries are, are entitled to receive a notice to beneficiaries from the personal representative informing them uh, that the estate's been opened, but I, I guess what you're saying is even if a personal representative fails to comply with that and send a notice to the beneficiary, that beneficiary can still be charged with actual notice of what's going on even if no one tells them about it? Sure. After a will has been admitted to probate or a judgment declaring heirship has been entered, there are certain notices that are supposed to go out to whoever the uh, beneficiaries or heirs are of the estate, but sometimes that just doesn't happen. Sometimes the executor or the administrator just doesn't get around to doing it. Maybe the attorney representing them is, is a practitioner in a small town and doesn't know that these things need to happen, and maybe it just doesn't need to get done. And the, what the constructive notice provisions say is that, you know, even if those things don't happen, even if you don't get a copy of the will, even if the executor doesn't call you and talk to you about this stuff, you are still on notice of what's going on in the probate proceedings just by virtue of the fact that it was filed in the public records. So you need to do something about it. And Chris, when you mentioned filing in the public records, if you know, I'm listening to this and I'm concerned, oh, oh boy, I need to start seeing what's been going on, where would I look 
to see uh, to find these public records that could be binding on me. So you would go to the typically somebody's estate is open where they pass away, so in the county that they pass away in, and so you would go to the probate. Um, court so here in Bear County it would be we have two statutory probate courts so you would go to the probate clerk and and ask them we, you can go online for Bear County a lot of the smaller counties don't have these the the online uh, capability that Bear County does but you can also call whoever the county court uh, is the county court clerk and figure out has a will been offered for probate you can go to wherever their the courthouse is and wherever the county is and ask them using the person's name has a probate been opened um, you can you can do searches there are an infinite number of searches um, online to search whether or not deeds have been executed by an executor and there's all sorts of mechanisms that you can use to try and figure out uh, where has this probate taken place has it taken place that puts you on notice of what's going on Chris in some of the smaller counties in some of the smaller counties is it the actual county judge who handles probate matters and how does that affect what somebody needs to do, a beneficiary needs to do to acquire that notice? Sure, in, in every county in the state, it's, it's possible that a different type of court handles the probate jurisdiction of that county. Like, as I mentioned, in Bear County, we have two statutory probate courts that have exclusive jurisdiction of probate proceedings. In smaller counties, for instance, Medina County, or, uh, there's a county court at law that has exclusive probate jurisdiction. In other counties, it's simply a county court that, that has that jurisdiction. And so uh, I would start with, in, in the smaller counties, you'd start with the county court or the county court at law and, and really ask about this probate court jur jurisdiction. And a lot of this information can be found out online about which court in, in the particular county has the jurisdiction over probate proceedings. And I'll add, if you're interested in trying to find these records, uh, just about every county is going to have a website. They're going to have phone numbers to call. And it's been my experience almost universally that uh, county staff are going to be as helpful as they possibly can be to point you in the right direction. So, for instance, you accidentally call the district clerk's office, which is not going to have these records. Uh, they'll point you in the right direction because it, it's just been my experience everyone is going to be trying uh, trying to help you uh, get to where you need to go. So d don't be intimidated about, boy, am I going to call the wrong person. Uh, the, the county staff is going to be helpful in that respect. Um, I think that concludes the, the notice part of, uh, of if, if you if you possibly are going to inherit from somebody you you need to take action and you need to do something or a statute of limitations can can bar your potential claim um, and and so typically you know in a will contest as we've discussed before you have two years to contest a will um, in other type proceedings and for instance in a breach of fiduciary duty claim if the executor didn't do what they needed to do you have four years to bring suit against them you have four years to offer a will for probate um, if you need to do that but after those limitations periods have expired it's going to be really hard uh, to deal with the estate and the administration of it um, because of this finality in probate proceedings because they are in rim proceedings as we discussed before so one of the next topics that that we, we need to discuss in this finality of probate proceedings are who are interested 
persons who has the ability, who has under the law, they call it standing, who has the right to complain, who has the right to come into the probate court or the county court and assert their right to inheritance or insert their right to complain about something that's happened um, it, within the context of the probate proceeding. And so, Joe, would you talk a little bit about that, about interested persons under um, in, in the probate context? Sure. So it, it, it's something, you know, going back to actually what Kathy mentioned at the beginning of this, this podcast episode is um, it, on a, the appellate level, the courts are going to be initially looking at, do I have a final... Uh, ruling that is appealable and also did the party that's trying to appeal the ruling have standing uh, to to challenge that ruling and standing is a uh, a legal word that uh, has been defined to mean you have a justiciable interest in the matter which really means you're personally affected by the lawsuit Um, and the uh, probate code defines interested persons with this standing to challenge a probate ruling um, as an heir, devisee, spouse, creditor, or any other uh, person having a property right in or a claim against an estate being administered. Now, that's a very broad definition, and depending on the type of ruling that you're challenging in a probate court, uh, that definition can be broader or narrower. So, for instance, um, if you are uh, contesting a will that's being offered for probate, the courts are going to apply that definition very broadly. For instance, if you're an heir, that can mean that you're an heir under a prior will. Um, however, if, say, you're challenging the administrator uh, and claiming that they breached a fiduciary duty to beneficiaries, if you were uh, an heir or, or a devisee under a prior will that has not been admitted to probate, you're not going to have standing to uh, claim that the executor or administrator breached a fiduciary duty because if that will is not admitted to probate, you don't have an interest in what's happening in the estate. With that broad definition, um, on a case-by-case basis, the probate court or or the county court hearing uh, the uh, estate's matters is going to have to do a a fact-by-fact determination of whether the party complaining of a ruling actually has standing to do so. Kathy, do you have anything to add to that? Sure. I I would say that standing is very significant in the appellate world when the appellate court looks at it. So, for example, if someone is but believes they are a beneficiary or should be a beneficiary and they bring some kind of an action in probate court and there are other people who are involved in the probate matter if the court makes a determination the probate court makes a determination that that person in fact does not have standing is not an interested person as it's defined in the probate law then they would the court would eliminate that person from the probate proceeding and it is possible that uh, that person could then bring an appeal of that order because as to them it would be final. It would be contested, I can promise you that, in the Court of Appeals. So the Court of Appeals would look at it to determine uh, what kind of evidence there was that the trial court, the probate court, looked at to determine if that person is or is not an interested person with standing. And if 
the a court of appeals determines that the trial court was correct, then that's really the end of the case for that person. Uh, it may or may not be final, and they may or may not be able to bring it up immediately. That's one of the things about the difficulty in probate appeals is you have to initially make that determination if it is if the order is complete enough to end an, an issue such that the Court of Appeals can look at it. It's very difficult even for people who practice in that area and it almost always requires someone to be looking what are the latest cases, what do they say, how do the courts make their decision. Even for appellate practitioners I always go back to the books. And, and Kathy, just a follow up on standing, you know, you mentioned if it's caught in the, in the trial court level at the probate court and people contest standing, uh, what happens if no one raises the issue of standing uh, before the probate court and the lawsuit goes forward, let's say you have a ruling on a will contest and no one's raised standing through that point, uh, if there's an appeal, can the Court of Appeals still look at that standing issue? Well, much to the dismay of most litigants, most people who are involved in a lawsuit, you can have a, a probate proceeding that lasts for years, you can have a trial that lasts for months, and then when it goes up on appeal, somebody who does not like the decision can point out that in fact one of the litigants did not have standing, they did not uh, occupy the position of an interested person and they can challenge that for the very first time on appeal and if their challenge is correct that just ends uh, it it calls for a redo it's a jurisdictional issue and and the court can't just create jurisdiction people can't agree to jurisdiction and the very first time somebody mentions a challenge to jurisdiction can actually be during the oral argument at the Court of Appeals and the court has to look at it and if it determines there's no jurisdiction, it we start all over. And, and even if the attorneys don't ever mention standing, if the court spots it, the court still has a duty to, to rule on standing. Right? Absolutely. I mean, I know it seems shocking because you could have years of expense and litigation, but in the end, if there's no jurisdiction, the courts have no authority and they can't act. And so I think the topic that, that you all are, are discussing is the subject matter jurisdiction and that the court has to have subject matter jurisdiction of the case and that if, if whoever the, the alleged interested person doesn't actually have standing and our, our law has very, very well developed who has standing in probate proceedings and, and who has not. There are endless cases that talk about contingent beneficiaries and do they have standing and contingent remainder men and, um, and all sorts of different types of beneficiaries and whether or not they have standing to assert certain rights. But at the end of the day, um, if the court doesn't, if that person doesn't have standing, then essentially the court lacks the subject matter jurisdiction to even hear the case, to even hear the complaint. And so anything that gets done is essentially null and void because the court lack the standing uh, in the first place. So as practitioners, um, you always have to look at that issue when you, when at, at first blush, when you get into the case to see, does everybody have, uh, have this interest in the estate 
that, that allows them to bring these claims, or this could all be for naught, and we could be, you know, waste a lot of money and attorney's fees and a lot of people's time and emotions. Um, so it's something that you really need to look at when, when you start a case. And if you're a practitioner at the beginning of the case and you think their standing is very questionable, uh, it, there's a lot of risk in going forward with that because even if no one brings it up until you get on the appellate level, the court itself can catch that issue and uh, throw out your case because the, the client lacks standing. So it, it's not something you want to uh, hope just falls through the cracks because it ultimately won't. And, and so we're going to talk in, in a minute about uh, a little bit more the finality of probate court orders or judgments and what can be appealed and what can't be appealed. But since we're on the concept of standing right now, um, Job or Kathy, do you all know whether or not an order uh, basically dismissing somebody from a case or, or in, in our in the probate court world we I would file a plea to the jurisdiction saying somebody doesn't have standing to bring the complaint that they're bringing but in order either granting that plea to the jurisdiction and excluding them from the case or denying it are you all aware of whether or not that is a final and appealable order in the in the context of the probate proceeding? Generally speaking, an order that someone lacks standing, is not an interested person and does not have standing to pursue the claim, generally speaking, that would be considered final and appealable. Okay, and, and just for purposes of our listeners, the, the court that, at least in Bear County, the court that that would get appealed to is what court? It, in Bear County, it would be appealed to the Fourth Court of Appeals, which sits in San Antonio, and it's not just Bear County because it covers uh, a good part of the Hill Country in South Texas, 32 counties uh, in the state. And so some of the cases that come from probate come from uh, probate courts like Bear County. Some of them come from county courts at law like Medina County or Webb County and some uh, come from the actual county judge which is the constitutional court so there's all levels of uh, intensity and all levels of attention to detail from the various courts but standing is the threshold issue always okay and when we talk about an appeal during this probate process to to an appellate court is that a is that a mandamus what do you call it Kathy when you when you're appealing one of these one of these rulings uh, generally speaking uh, the appeal would be considered uh, interlocutory because it's not the whole part it's one part of the case and that part is final under case law as to certain issues because it's it's developed and and distinguished and decided one particular part of the case and so it's final in that regard and it's interlocutory which is just a term used in the law to say it's not the whole case but it's a significant portion final as to that portion of the dispute and uh, it can, and not always, but it is usually on an accelerated uh, basis to the Court of Appeals, which means uh, once that order is entered that a party wants to challenge, they have uh, a limited time period to act and get themselves to the Fourth Court of Appeals or any of the other 13 courts of appeals in the state. And, and Kathy, I think we've covered at least two different orders that can be appealed in this interlocutory appellate process. We've covered you know, a will being admitted to probate uh, over objection. That can be uh, appealed immediately. 
we've discussed uh, whether a party lacks standing, a ruling on that can be appealed. Uh, what, what are some other examples of issues that you know, courts have decided around the state of Texas can be appealed uh, immediately as, as a final order? Okay, so some examples would be um, if an executor is appointed and there has been an objection to that executor, that can be uh, immediately appealed. An order declaring heirship, who are the heirs of the person who has passed away, that can be appealed. And an order approving or denying attorney's fees uh, that would be paid to the executor, that can be appealed. And then there's a host of other things on a fact-by-fact, case-by-case basis that could come up. For example, someone might claim they are the common-law spouse uh, of, of the person who has passed away, and that might be a matter, uh, kind of falls into standing, but that might be a matter that could be appealed. And, and Chris mentioned earlier that there's lots and lots of litigation, many, many cases in the state of Texas in the probate area, which means that there's a lot of, I don't want to say ammunition, but there's a lot of case law there for people to interpret different ways so that there are multiple opportunities for people to be opposing each other and have some cases that they say support their point of view, even though they're in opposite points of view. Okay, and so... um one of our points, I guess, that we want to talk about, are, are we discussing, when we're talking about a, appealing something, is this a direct attack? Is this what we call a direct attack on, on the probate court's order? Uh, yes, a, an appeal would be a direct attack. Also, before you go on appeal, if a party wants to try and get a second uh, chance to convince the judge that they in fact are right in their arguments, they can uh, file a motion for new trial. It is not always a, a prerequisite to filing an appeal, but they can go back to the trial court and ask the trial court to reconsider what he or she has ruled, and that's a motion for new trial. And if one files a motion for new trial, one of the benefits is you might convince the judge that they were wrong the first time around and they might change their mind but the other benefit is it generally gives uh, you more time to actually file your appeal but those are called direct appeals the first direct attack being a motion for new trial and the second one being an appeal and what the the time frame for filing a a motion for new trial would be what? A motion for new trial, you have 30 days from the date the order or judgment you're complaining of was signed. You have 30 days to file a motion for new trial. And if you miss that deadline, you have missed that deadline. It, it's There's nothing you can do about it. Uh, and then the trial court has a total, and that's from the date the judgment is signed, and the trial court has a total of 75 days from the date the judgment or order is filed to rule on the motion for new trial. And if the trial judge does not rule by the 75th day, then it is automatically, just as a matter of law, it's overruled, and then one has to go on to the Court of Appeals. And, and from Say at, at, at that time, it's been 75 days, the trial court doesn't rule on your motion for a new trial. Uh, a party then has, is it 30 days to file a notice of appeal? The, the court, the person then has 30 days to file their, their notice of appeal. They file it in the trial court and the trial court then passes it up to the court of appeals, but that's the process. It's, again, uh, timetables are meant to uh, keep everyone on the same page. They are in, they try to further the whole concept of we want finality, we don't want things to just keep lingering because these are people's lives and property at issue, um, but 
so rules for finality and filing appeals are technical, they're detailed, and they are fatal if they are not followed. And, and you mentioned finality, and we've talked a lot about that. And in, in the context of a probate proceeding, sometimes the probate has to go on, um, and, and somebody has to administer the estate, somebody has to pay the debt, somebody has to file a tax return, somebody has to pay the, the bills that come in. Um, and so would you talk a little bit, Kathy, about what a severance is and, and w when it's appropriate and how that, how that can help lead to an appeal, but the, but the other part of the case, the probate administration, if you will, can still go on? Well, that's a really good point that the, the administration of the estate needs to continue. It can't come to a halt because one person, there could be a cast of thousands involved in a, in a probate litigation, one person is dissatisfied and perhaps the order that they're dissatisfied with is final uh, as to them, uh, but they're not 100% sure it's final as to them. So the Supreme Court of Texas has uh, told us in one of its cases that probably the safest thing to do is to ask the court to sever that order out so that a severance is a specific order. It's uh, the court, the probate court would sign something and then it allows that order to be uh, appealed. So if there's any doubt on the part of the litigant or the litigant's attorney, it's probably wise to ask the probate court to grant a severance so they can then for sure go up on appeal. And as far as an appeal, uh, after the notice of appeal is filed, um, yeah, everyone wants to know, well, how quickly can I get a decision from the Court of Appeals? Uh, what, what kind of time range, and I know it can depend on a case-by-case -case basis, but what kind of time range should a, a person be looking uh, at for an appeal? Okay, well, let's say, I mean, that's a really great question, and it's going to be more time than anybody wants, uh, but there are practical reasons for that time. So let's say that a motion for new trial is filed, you know then that it could go as long as 75 days after that order you're complaining about uh, was signed before anything really happens because that trial court has 75 days to make a ruling and if that court is uh, uncertain or does not want to make a ruling they'll let the 75 days run and um, then you have 30 days to file your notice of appeal so we're already bumping up past 100 days and when you file your notice of appeal you have to ask the clerk of the court to put together all the filings all the paperwork that's necessary for the court of appeals to review and it takes the clerk of the court time to put that together in what's called the clerk's record that will go up to the court of appeals it has to be in a proper format for the court uh, and you also have to ask the court reporter to prepare what's called the reporter's record which is what has been all the words that have been taken down at all the hearings that uh, are relevant to your appeal. That could take uh, another 30 days easily, could take as much as another 90 days. Once all the record is filed, you have 30 days to file your brief, which is your written documentation with all your legal arguments about why you're right and the trial court was wrong. Uh, and you can ask for an extension. There are a lot of reasons why um, a person might get an extension of time to file that. So now you could be 60 days. The Court of Appeals in San Antonio regularly will grant people 60 to 90 days extension of time to file their brief. And after you file your brief, the other side gets to file their brief. They might also have extensions. And then there might be oral argument. 
So if there's oral argument, that's probably going to be 60 to 90 days after all the briefs have been filed. And then the court will issue its opinion within six months, generally. And that's how it works at the fourth court. Some other courts might be quicker. They might be longer. And if it's an accelerated appeal, if it's considered accelerated, you can cut that time down by probably shave a third of the time off, maybe. But for bottom line, practical, cautious, advice would be you could easily easily be looking at one year after that order was signed before you start hearing anything from the Court of Appeals about what their ruling will be. Mm-hmm. And, and that doesn't even go into if it goes to the Supreme Court after that and maybe right. another year on top of that. Right. An appeal to the Court of Appeals in San Antonio, easily a year in part depending on how big the record is and how long it takes the uh, clerks to get the record in and that's usually the longest period of time in the appeal is how long it takes the clerks to get their record together Uh, so an appeal to the court of appeals easily a year an appeal to the supreme court easily a year or more okay thank you Um, so we've talked a little bit about the direct attack and the time frames and and who, who has the right to do that and so but if, if you're a beneficiary or if you're an heir and, and it's been uh, at least a year, the 30 days past a judgment has run and it's become final and, um, and you don't know what to do, um, Joe, would you talk a little bit about what um, a bill of review is and when it's appropriate and, and sort of in the estate code context, what does the estate's code provide in terms of a bill of review and then in in, in what situations might it be applicable? So a a bill of review is in Texas a statutory tool uh, that's set out in the estate's code that that allows a person to attack a court's ruling um, well past the uh, appellate deadlines uh, that we were just discussing. And this could really come into a play. I mean, if you've been participating in the lawsuit, you're represented by counsel, uh, in all likelihood, you went through the appellate process and the direct attack process. But but let's say uh, you were a beneficiary that was not participating in all the litigation in probate court, um, but you realized, uh, you, you looked in the, the court's records, the uh, real estate records, and you say, you know, there's something that's happened. I remember you're charged with constructive notice of anything that's filed of public record. And, and you see those records and realize, I need to step in and challenge this. Uh, the estate's code has what's called a bill of review, which it allows an interested person, and that's going back to that definition we just discussed here a few minutes ago, that, that group of people that has standing to attack a court's ruling. An interested person may, by bill of review, filed in the court in which the probate proceedings were held, have an order or judgment uh, made by the court revised and corrected on a showing of error in the order or judgment. So even if you hadn't participated up to that point, you can come in and by showing of error, uh, try and attack that court ruling, if it, even if it had not been appealed. Uh, what constitutes an actual showing of error? Um, that's going to be determined on a case-by-case basis. There's a number of appellate decisions going on that, and uh, there, there's not a bright-line rule uh, that you can say in every case this is 
always going to be a showing of error. I mean, uh, standing may uh, be close to a bright line rule, that kind of uh, attack. Also, for instance, going back to one of our earliest episodes, if uh, a will that's been admitted to probate does not meet the statutory requirements of a valid will. Let's say it's a typewritten will that was not witnessed by two people but was still somehow admitted to probate. That would be something that you could attack as uh, you know, an error in the order admitting that will to probate through a bill of review. Uh, an important thing to know about the bill of review is, is just how much extra time do you have. When we talked about direct attack, you know, you're looking at 30 days for the new trial, the timing for the appeal. By statute, to file a bill of review, it has to be filed within two years after the date of the order or judgment. And uh, for a long time, there's also a, a tool called an equitable bill of review, which equity just means fairness, so it's a fairness bill of review where you could get even more than two years to attack a court's ruling. But as is kind of been a theme uh, of this, this discussion today is the courts want finality. And uh, in a recent decision of, by the Texas Supreme Court, they ruled that there's no more equitable bill of review. The estate's code provision requiring two years for a bill of review applies to any type of bill of review. So at most, you have two years after the order that you're complaining of. You have two years to attack it. And what, what case was that that you were saying the Supreme Court mandated that? Uh, that was the Valdez versus Hollenbach decision, which was decided in, in 2015. Okay. Kathy, do you have anything to add about bills of review? No, bills of review, I would just add, need to be filed in the same court where the order came from, but they need to be filed with a new cause number. So you kind of need to remember that. The practitioners need to remember that. So it's an entirely new case, but it must be in the same court uh, where the original order came from. Mm -hmm. And I guess for a practitioner, that would be a, a collateral attack is what the term would be for that. It is a new lawsuit uh, attacking a, a probate ruling. Exactly. And so I want to thank Job and Kathy for uh, this, our final episode in the Will Contest fo Focus Fiduciary Litigation. Um, and I want to thank everyone for listening. Um, if, if you have any questions or comments, please don't hesitate to contact uh, one of us. Um, and um, just thank you for your time. Thank you for joining us today for the Langley and Benack podcast. Please subscribe to get the latest updates. If you would like to meet with one of our attorneys, please contact us through our website, www.langleybenack.com or call us at 210-736-6600.